This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome everyone. In today's episode, we will be exploring emotions in sport, which I have to admit has been a somewhat neglected topic in in this podcast so far. But so, uh, sport experiences are really full of emotions. They contain so much joy, despair, sometimes even anger. And this forms a central part of why we are so attracted to sport. And we know that psychological perspectives on emotions have been fairly established for a longer time and actually one of the big topics as well at the same um, as we are talking today. But what I'm especially looking forward to today is exploring the phenomenon of emotions in sport from a philosophical perspective. And this is certainly something that hasn't gained as much attention so far. And that uh, is something that my guest has really advanced and worked on in, in the past few years. And so I'm delighted to have Dr. Yunus Tunsel visiting the podcast for the second time. We had our first conversation about two years ago, and we focused uh, on exploring Nietzsche's philosophy and how we can apply it to gain a deeper understanding of sport as a cultural phenomenon. Yunus teaches philosophy at the New School, New York. Um, in the New York University's Liberal Studies program. And he's the author of several books, including the recent works on Nietzsche, on human emotions. And a specific interest for us today, the book Emotions in Sport, Philosophical Perspectives, uh, which was published a couple of years ago. And this will provide a uh, central starting point for our conversation today. Welcome to the podcast, Yunus. It's wonderful to have you here today. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for the wonderful introduction. Really delighted to be talking to you again. And the first time we discussed was about two years ago. I think that was probably the year when we first met because you organized this Nietzsche trip to Sils Maria, where we spend a week reading Nietzsche's philosophy. And then the pandemic after that has disrupted everything. But now we met again a few months ago, two months ago in Italy, uh, to do another study trip uh, to explore Nietzsche's philosophy close to Rapallo this time. And so in addition to your teaching and writing activities, one of the things is that you do is that you have this philomobile organization. So you are organizing these different trips for people interested in uh, studying philosophy and traveling at the same time. So would you just briefly talk about um, what this Philomobile thing is all about and what are your plans now at the moment when traveling might be possible again? Thanks, Nora, for the introduction. Uh, yeah, well, Philomobile started um, kind of uh, by bringing two of my passions together, philosophy and traveling. 
So the, the idea is to explore uh, philosophers in the place where they lived. I did the first one I did was on Nietzsche. It was a small group, so we visited uh, many of the Nietzsche sites, including Sis Maria. Uh, so then after that, I had done several trips. I don't do it often, and of course the pandemic uh, disrupted it. But I. I don't uh, prepare these trips just so that I uh, I'm the lecturer or the teacher. I work with others. So in fact, uh, we organized two, uh, rather scheduled two uh, on psychoanalysis. One was on Freud, the other one on Jung. But unfortunately, pandemic uh, sort of um, uh, disrupted these plans. So we are actually rescheduling those. But I will not be uh, leading those trips. Uh, the, the main idea is uh, we find someone who specialize on the topic, either a philosopher or a thinker, or in this case, psychoanalyst, and got a daily lead the, the true tour, the trip. The retreats, we've done two so far, uh, retreats where we're on Nietzsche, and uh, of course the idea of retreat is a little bit different. Typically we are in one region, uh, we don't do much traveling, in fact in Sismaria we don't do much. The last one we did a little bit more in the, in the vicinity, uh, but yeah, the retreat is more, you're in one place, you read the text, this kind of workshop, whereas the other five, what I call file trips, uh, those are we travel. We're always on the road. I did one on ancient Greece, another one on Rome, uh, Roman philosophy. So we are always on the road. They're kind of a little bit intensive, uh, more intensive than the retreats because we are always moving. So well, anyway, that's the idea. Uh, to explore philosophers in situ, as we say it, on location. And uh, hopefully we'll revitalize. I may do another Nietzsche one, but that's not uh, in the works yet. Maybe in the coming years, uh, another Nietzsche trip, uh, starting with uh, his hometown region, Namburg, uh, Leipzig, that area, and coming down to uh, Sismaria. So... Anyway, that's that's Philomobile and still active, but it's as I said, we don't do these trips all the time. And I know that you have been reading Nietzsche, or you've been a Nietzsche reader, as as you <laughs> call the people who are interested in Nietzsche for so many decades. Huh? Remind me again when you started studying Nietzsche in 1984. And so now we just spend a week in June again reading Nietzsche. We were able to explore get a nice overview of Beyond Good and Evil. Mm -hmm. And so after you spend all this time studying these texts, did you still get something new out of the week that we spent together with our group? Good, good question. Uh, yes, I do. I, you know, it's, uh, the philosophical texts are always rich, not, not, not just Nietzsche writings. Each time I read, yeah, I, I realize that I haven't seen something before. Yes, I do. Uh, not, not, not just for Nietzsche's books, it's just uh, you read whatever uh, other philosophers, Kant, Hegel, Plato, uh, you find something, something that you hadn't seen before. And also I read in German as well, so the, the German, not all English, German, so in the original you also discover something that uh, maybe you, you misunderstood before because of translation, then there's a new discovery because... You didn't know. There's no way that, you know, I can know all the <laughs> original uh, words that Nietzsche uses. So when I consult uh, with the German text, then I discover another meaning. So that happens also. The nuances, there are always nuances in the text that you hadn't seen before. Uh, yeah, so there's a, it's a rich, rich territory. Right. 
always something new to discover yeah. or find a different angle to read the text. Yeah, absolutely. And so Nietzsche has been really one of the big topics. You work on other topics as well, and you have the book on Nietzsche on human emotions. And then the other work that you produced now recently is the book that I mentioned in the introduction, so Emotions in Sport, specifically looking at sport from a philosophical perspective. And in the introduction, I already mentioned that in, in psychology, you do find quite a lot, but in philosophy, actually not, not so much. And so how did you start developing these ideas around looking at emotions in sport? And uh, yeah, uh, how do you compare? Because you know the psychological literature as well. So how does this philosophical perspective bring us something really new and interesting? Okay, well, good question. Um, uh, first, uh, how did I come to this topic? So I'll give a short background and well, okay, again, uh, Nietzsche writes a lot on emotions. I mean, you read, and that's my last book, deals with that. So, uh, And uh, the writers who influence uh, Nietzsche, some of the writers, uh, like Schopenhauer and the French aphorists, people like Laroche Foucault, they also deal a lot with human emotions. So that was always in the back of my mind, a subject emotions from a either philosophical standpoint or literary standpoint. But I also read, studied some psychoanalysis. So then, okay, so that's the uh, philosophy emotion part. But then I've been uh, engaged with sport philosophy since 2010, I believe, roughly, before the last 10 years or so. So then I, I present a paper on this subject, and uh, there's a, a, one of the leading scholars uh, on sport philosophy was in the audience. Uh, he said this would be a good book topic. Why don't you make a proposal? Uh, Michael McNamee is his name. And I said, all right, let me, let's do that. And he was the editor of the series at Rutledge. And yeah, so that's what brought me to the book, The Emotion in Sports. Now, as for your uh, question on psychology versus philosophy, philosophers also deal with emotions now not sport philosophy sport philosophy is relatively new but i mean as far back as plato you know so a lot of discussion of emotions uh, more from a philosophical standpoint more with ideas like they are not uh, the, i would say the main difference is in psychology you experiment with people you study with their cases you study cases so it's uh, a little bit i would say more concrete in philosophy we are making speculations about ideas. I would say that's one difference. So I'm sure there are many differences, but one of them is, uh, I think psychology is more concrete about uh, human emotions. Philosophy is more abstract. But also the ideas on emotions in philosophy, they're almost always connected to their philosophies. Plato's ideas, on, let's say on fear or other emotions, or jealousy, they're all connected to his own philosophy. Right? They are not, I mean, they come out of his philosophy, similarly with Nietzsche. So uh, so I would say that's another difference. They're very much uh, within the, they have to be understood within the context of their overall uh, philosophy. Um, so, so that's, I would say, those are the some of the, the main differences. Uh, psychoanalysis is interesting because Psychoanalysis is kind of an interesting bridge between philosophy and psychology, deals with human psyche, uh, but yet they're also informed by philosophical ideas. 
Um, so that's what I would say about you know the, the difference between you know, psychology and philosophy. Of course, psychology uh, fits with the domain of the human soul, whereas philosophy is more the mind, but there's also a cross-section as well. So they interact a lot. Yeah. And then we have something like existential psychology, which is also informed by what is uh, happening in existential philosophy and applying these ideas. But so I, I agree that mostly you do have this distinction that they are trying to operate with their a little bit different disciplinary assumptions. Yeah. Do you have any ideas in terms of philosophy of sport is quite a new area of study, but there is research or scholarship around uh, different philosophical topics. Why have sport philosophers uh, neglected emotions so far? Why are you now the, among the first ones who are really like taking up and working on the topic? Well, okay, m- mine may be the first book, I, but there, there, there are sport philosophers who deal with the subject. I mean, like McNamee deals with that. There are several sport philosophers who deal with it. I'm not the first one or the only one. So there it is, but it, it is not in the in the forefront of subjects in sport philosophy. If that is the case, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a typical bias against emotion in philosophy, classical bias, if you will. Emotions are secondary, but that is in classical philosophy. I mean, like Plato, Kant, its emotions are maybe not even secondary in terms of importance. And the human mind is the most important, cognition and all that. But that's a classical bias. I'm not sure how common that bias is in sport philosophy today. Uh, yeah, so, but, but that, uh, I mean, I, I guess it exists to some extent. I just don't know uh, to what extent. So that's one reason. And the other thing would be there are so many outstanding topics in sport philosophy that go back to those who started, like like uh, Suits, like Bernard Suits. I, I don't think that's a big topic in his, in his writings. It talks a lot about what plays, what sport is, uh, competition and all that, which is also my topic. But I don't think uh, emotion is a big topic in people like uh, Suits or other uh, sort of founders of sport philosophy or the initial figures like uh, Frehley. I, I don't think it's a big topic in them. So, uh, and a lot of um, sport philosophy people today they want to go back to these initial debates. Uh, the you know the what what is sport? Uh, the definition of sport, intrinsic qualities, extrinsic qualities. So they don't want to go into these so-called marginal topics like emotions. But to me, it's not marginal. To me, I think. And, uh, Emotional, as I, as I argue in my book, I mean, you need to have specific kind of emotions to sustain the spirit of sport. That's my main thesis in this book. Otherwise, we are going to kill the sporting culture, like if excessive anger or excessive jealousy, uh, things like that, uh, will, or excessive anxiety. Like if I'm very anxious to perform, I won't be able to play. I mean, so basically, you know, the, a certain balance of emotions uh, is needed to sustain the sporting culture, which we have, but that's my argument, my one of my main arguments in the book. Yeah, so this balanced background, it's maybe like an invisible background that we know when the balance goes wrong, excessive anger, anxiety, these things that make it impossible for us to play sport, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Excellent. And so 
basically, if we then start looking at the few key ideas in your book that you use as a foundation for your work, we already mentioned Nietzsche a little bit, and um, we will discuss his philosophy as well. And then you have kind of three other key figures, Aristotle, Spinoza, and Hume. And you use these four philosophers to discuss and build up some central ideas uh, Then you then start uh, using in terms of building a framework for exploring uh, emotions in sport. So should we just take a little tour around uh, what are the contributions that these four philosophers uh, make that you find uh, especially valuable in, in starting the discussion about emotions in sport? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of, okay, I established this framework with four philosophers, but of course there could have been many more, but uh, that would have uh, made the book way longer, which I don't think is reasonable for a book like this. So, all right, so uh, I took several ideas from these philosophers that I believe is crucial to sports and uh, sport philosophy and also the subject emotions. So Simon Aristotle, the idea of catharsis, the, the discharge of emotions, Uh, of course, uh, catharsis has been a big topic, not only in philosophy, but also in psychology. And it's been read in many different ways. Uh, catharsis means discharging, but also it means purification. Uh, so, and Aristotle uses it mostly for Greek tragedy. But then I took it, it kind of, uh, I don't want to say decontextualized, but I used it for sport. So basically, uh, we need to, Uh, deal with these emotions and um, kind of uh, unburden their load, so to speak. Uh, if, uh, I don't know, we have issues with anger, then we need to deal with it. We need to externalize it, but externalize it in its own context, uh, not by hurting people, but uh, finding the right uh, medium to fear all these emotions uh, that we have. So we need to uh, deal with them. In uh, Aristotle, it was uh, pity and comp uh, fear and compassion, or fear and pity. Sometimes translated as pity, but it could also be compassion. So th th these were the two primary emotions. But of course, there are lots of other emotions uh, that uh, need to be discharged. And so discharge means not just simply externalize, but in a way you deal with them. You you know um, how to externalize them. If you have issues with fear. Uh, then I guess uh, you have to find uh, objects of fear uh, that then somehow uh, go through the therapy. By therapy, I don't mean just psychological therapy, but healing, right? You have need to uh, sort of take care of these these emotions. So that's uh, how I sort of uh, used Aristotle's idea of discharge, um, catharsis of emotions, and purification uh, has, of course, a kind of a religious context, Uh, but um, it, yeah, it means uh, the cleansing of the emotion. Uh, you sort of uh, you elevate it. Uh, you elevate uh, the raw emotion that you have, and you find you know. And we all have it. We all have. Unfortunately, many of these come out in family uh, situations or or in close relationships. But we have all these raw negative emotions uh, that need to be dealt with, and so catharsis is that. Yeah. Do you have some sporting example to bring us uh, closer to the sports and athletes? Uh, well, I mean, it's a, 
okay, I mean, we could have a specific examples about, okay, the general example, spectators, fans, like, they also are cathartic when they, they watch a game, they're very much attached to their team. I mean, you see it especially in soccer or football, but I'm sure in all other sports. So then they are discharging emotions as well in a different way. Um, in terms of a, like specific examples, okay, anger, the subject anger. And I give this example all the time. The, from the, I gave that example in my last talk, uh, Zidane's headbutt in the soccer game. Yeah, so basically it's uncontrolled anger. So I don't, it's not fear or compassion uh, the way Aristotle talks about, but anger. Uh, anger also we need to discharge, find ways of discharging. So in this case, it was an uncontrolled anger. Uh, you know, you can kill people with such headbutts. I mean, if someone has a heart condition, yeah, so basically... I don't remember what his response was after the event. I have to go back and find out. But in any case, uh, David David Kilpatrick uh, helped me with the context where I think the other uh, player uh, used some um, some sexual things about his sister and etc. But that's the bigger picture. And there's a sexual context, which takes us back to the Freudian <laughs> subject. Uh, but in any case, whatever the reasons were, uh, so which means, uh, yeah, he had, he had, I don't know, he still has it, but he had anger issues, which we all have. I'm not saying just he has. We all, I'm sure you, you push someone's soft spot, uh, but then that means we need to work on these soft spots because, yeah, that's where we get angry. I mean, we don't get angry at anything. We get angry where... You press people's soft spots, so so we need to find out find out what these are and work on them. Yeah, and in certain sports, the whole like big part of the game is also that you're trying to make your opponent upset, right? That they are acting on their emotions and losing concentration and things like this. Yeah, to demoralize your opponent psychologically. Psychology is a big thing, right? Our psychic well-being. So if you lose that, you cannot do much physically. Okay, let's move to the yeah next thinker. Let's take Spinoza then. Yeah, Spinoza. He, well, he's the first to start his effect theory. Okay, what are effects? Well, the way he describes effect is a change in movement in the, the, the in the state of the body. So bodily modification. So effect is often translated as emotion, but I don't think they are exactly the same. I would say every emotion is an effect, but not the other way around. So when I when I become emotional, when I am angry or or I'm afraid, yes, something is changing in me in my bodily state. Correct. So, so in that sense, we can say that every emotion is an effect, but not every effect is an emotion. So the effects are more, I would say, more basic, more rudimentary. They they have to do with our are psychic and somatic registers or forces. Let's say, I don't know, hunger, some basic thing. Like I get hungry, right? I get hungry, all right, that's a change in my bodily state. But that doesn't mean that I become angry. I mean, people have different reactions to these kind of bodily states. But then, okay, in my case, yeah, I have less tolerance for hunger. Yes, I do get cranky. So in my case, Hunger makes me crank and angry. So yes, so that is that these the anger and hunger are very much closely connected. But again, they are not the same. 
So the effects are at the, the, the basic level, but then they are very much connected emotions. So Spinoza uh, was the first uh, to talk about these, and he goes on to also talking about these different emotions and uh, how they become effective. So basically, so these are the effects. Effects become they become emotions, and then if they resonate with others um, around you, then they become effectivity. So uh, my okay, I I'm hungry. It's a basic effect that I get angry at someone near next to me and that person responds to me so now that my initial anger is now finding a sort of a community so to speak and of course uh, with negative emotions when they spread unfortunately that is not good for the community right so then you're spreading anger or other things uh, other kinds of emotions so so basically this shows us that emotions are not just subjective they are also collective they are a collective dimension so our typical bias is that feelings we feel emotions subjectively individually but no that's not really always true uh, yes there's an individual uh, dimension of emotions but there's a collective uh, not to mention the fact that some emotions are they grow in specific collectivities uh, some i don't know but i like what i mean is some religions or societies or social codes or moral codes they promote specific kinds of emotions like revenge the whole cultural revenge i mean the blood feud like this whole i mean even in greek myth greek tragedies deal with that there's a whole uh, blood cycle bloodletting uh, based on the emotion of revenge right and there is a uh, there's a social norm to it there's a collectivity so uh, so basically that also shows us that emotions are not just subjective or individual but they also uh, they appear in a collective context social collective context right and so that that you would then extend to sport teams or sport fans and so forth right of course yeah sure uh, the the athletes behavior their anger at their opponent uh, they could they could get support from their fans because fans are very much attached to their I iconic athletes so then they pretty much the emotion that they show in the field uh, that echo in the in the audience in spectatorship and when those emotions are not healthy then they will impact the entire sporting community but they can also be healthy emotions so far we talk a lot about anger and <laughs> Of course, the joyfulness, uh, exuberance. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, we in philosophy tend to show the the negative things and be critical of them. But of course, uh, we have to consider positive emotions like like uh, joy when you score a goal or you win. Yeah. They're joyful, and of course, they are. Uh, these are also crucial. Uh, both both are important. Yeah, absolutely. Good. We will jump to Hume and then we leave Nietzsche as the last one. We might have a bit longer discussion on Nietzsche. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. So, Hume. Yeah. Well, well, well Hume is uh, an interesting figure because he is uh, critical of uh, excessive rationality. Uh, because prior to that, well, there are several things around Hume. One is, okay, the, the, the classical approach to... Uh, to hu human emotions strictly from a rational standpoint, I would like Descartes. Uh, it's all a mind thing, all mental. Well, there are things beyond the mind. So, uh, in fact, uh, David Hume 
kind of un, undoes this rationalist paradigm and the and it's, he does it in relation to emotions. He says uh, reason is kind of a secondary to human, human emotions. What are primary are the moral sentiments. Uh, so then he goes on to understanding uh, what these primary moral sentiments are, they, like things like benevolence, compassion, and all other things. So these are kind of prior. When we act, these moral sentiments kind of guide us. Reason or rationality comes later. Uh, when we try to a analyze it, understand it. Uh, so, in a way, for him, reason is secondary. But the other thing that's uh, crucial in uh, David Hume's discussion is quality. What he talks about quality of sentiments, right? Not every sentiment or emotion is of the same quality. And I guess then we could tie David Hume's discussion to Spinoza's effect. So the question is, what are those qualities and emotions uh, that have a good impact on people around us? Uh, and what are those low qualities? So uh, not every sort of emotion is to be pursued. I mean, you know, there are all kinds of emotions. I could you know, take pleasure in tormenting an animal, which would be an awful pleasure, uh, what, what could be called schadenfreude in German. And schadenfreude means lots of things, uh, but the primary meaning is you take joy in the in the suffering pain of the other of course there are different kinds of pains and sufferings but if you're tormenting someone and taking pleasure uh, that is a highly problematic emotion so then uh, we could say there's a low quality emotion and uh, then we could try to figure out what are those high quality emotions and then in sports uh, you could say the same thing i mean you know it's um, the, the example that comes to my mind is, uh, maybe in my book also, uh, the, the World Cup championship played between Brazil and Germany in Brazil. I know I forgot the year. Um, let's see, trace it back. Was it 2014? Anyway, and I know that it's not 18, so I'm going back to 14 or maybe earlier. So anyway, that's about it's easy to find out. It's the, the championship where just Brazil uh, lost it. I forgot the score. Was it really 7-1 or 8-1? Eight, eight some uh, they, they were devastated. And you could see some players, Brazilian players, were crying. And you could see their pain. Uh, this is their home field, uh, country. And, uh, and Brazil is typically a very good team, right, in all many played many World Cups, the champion for I don't know how many, uh, three or four uh, World Cups. And uh, so it was a big loss. And uh, then, of course, you could see how joyful the German players are, whether in that joy was there a schadenfreude as well in the face of uh, the, the pain of their opponent. I mean, these, are, these were actually passing through my mind as I was watching the game at the end. So that's the, okay, we can never know fully, uh, you know, what's really going on. Of course, the German players are, uh, they are uh, happy, joyful that they are now the champion. But uh, so it's an interesting contrast, uh, you know, the pain of the other. Uh, it's the same event, like right? winning the game. It's the pain of the other. It applies to many, many games, many competitive games, right? The pain of the other is the joy of the other. Pain of one team is the joy of that's how it is. 
The, the question is, to what extent can we be joyful without uh, denigrating our opponent, right? without falling into maybe what we may call schadenfreude? Yeah. And what is your position in terms of schadenfreude being acceptable or however we want to call it? <laughs> well, okay. many In many circles, people don't accept any schadenfreude. I, I don't agree with them. I mean, there is a... Yeah, I think I argue for that in my book. There is a... Look, the other side is suffering, yes, but that should not prevent the winner to enjoy the victory. And uh, there is a level of joy. Yes, maybe uh, you, you cannot be excessive with your joy. And Okay, right, you know, we, we beat the hell out of you. You're a loser and blah, blah. I mean, we should not denigrate our opponent. Uh, but yet, uh, there is nothing wrong in uh, positive affirmation of joy uh, at this stage rather than just be oh, okay i'm not going to enjoy it because i don't want my opponent to be crying uh, i guess i mean there must be a level of joyfulness in every victory but uh, within i would say within certain limits uh, you know the why limits as i said you know no need to put down or uh, denigrate your opponent entirely uh, but yeah so same thing with the loss i mean no need to fall into depression. I mean, how many rejections and losses we have in our lives, right? I mean, the walls could not be enough for rejections or defeats that I face, many of us face. So that we simply have to accept, learn something, maybe learn uh, not from defeat, loss, and move on. Life is full of possibilities. Yeah, and this is what is often said, that sport teaches you how to lose because it's so inevitable. <laughs> When you play sport, you cannot be winner all the time. Even even the winners, long time winners, uh, were losing before. I mean, when they started, I, I, someone like Mohamed Ali Clay, I bet he, he lost many matches uh, in his early phase of his life. But then he became a champion. But uh, but yeah, he must have lost many. I mean, we we lose. That's how the training. We lose all the time when we're training. I mean, training means loss. So basically, those who cannot handle loss, I wonder if they can ever succeed, I mean, without, uh, you know, facing loss and defeat. Good. Now we move on to Nietzsche, and I know you could talk about Nietzsche and emotions the whole day with all the yeah. work you've done on, on this topic the last few years. But let's take a couple of key points and how, how this helps us think about what is going on in sport. All right, okay, yeah, I know. There are so many things. In fact, I have a... I have an article on the subject, uh, Nietzsche in sports. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to expand on that to make it into a book or maybe an anthology could be done. Yeah, I think we discussed this article. We discussed that two years ago. So let's go to a very focused applying Nietzsche on, on emotions in sport. So I think for the broader background, listeners can go back to the discussion we've had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So... Um, Starting with, okay, all right, uh, let's see the, the basic, all right, I don't know, we could apply to Nietzsche's ideas, take revenge. Okay, like this is a new topic, I don't think we dealt with it, with Aristotle and all that. Uh, revenge is a big thing in Nietzsche, we have to overcome revenge, but also the Zarathustra teaches that. Since so sports, revenge comes up all the time. I mean, even revenge, I mean, they, you know, the second time a, uh, the team plays on the other side that's what's called in French like kind of a term 
re return or re so basically a revenge is inevitable in human life but uh, excessive forms of revenge like mediated revenge is highly problematic because then you know you are taking an action out of context right so that, okay let's say uh, let's talk about not what i said earlier the rev revenge thing but playing a second time with the same team but let's say that individual players someone hurt you while playing like commit a foul in a completely unjust way uh, it wasn't an accident it was an intentional foul and now you feel bitter about it and then in the next game you're facing the same opponent to go after that person that player is just completely nonsensical it's a completely different game different set of circumstances so um or even in the same game to do it would be completely uncalled for will disrupt disturb the spirit of sport uh, but again yes uh, these are all two human emotions uh, we are vulnerable to them uh, we feel upset when something is done to us uh, so basically okay Nietzsche's advice is when something happens to you something unjust then you deal with it you deal with it right there and then so you don't sort of grow on that thing and then uh, you know build plans and uh, to come back at, at your opponent. Uh, so the, the first, he calls both of them revenge. The first one today, we wouldn't use the term revenge. Basically, the first one is immediate action. He calls it revenge because if you don't take immediate action, that turns into revenge. What he calls, or what I guess I, I use these terms, mediated revenge. So because you didn't do anything initially, and it sort of eats your soul and your mind and you make plans and then you talk to yourself so it's done to me i'm gonna get back to this person you, you sit on it and then revenge eats you so that's what i call i don't know if it's in nature but anyway it, it's in the writings it's mediated revenge the first one is immediate action you do something now why does mediated revenge happen well because could be for different reasons. First, we are powerless. We may not have the power or the powers to be in the case of sports, umpires and referees didn't do, didn't do their job, didn't do their mediation for justice, right? There was a there was a kind of a vacuum of justice. Nothing was done. You couldn't do it because you are powerless. So all of these, all of the or your personality, you are a very shy type, withdrawn, you couldn't speak out. There are all these reasons or because you are afraid of the impact of what you could do if you say something all of these could be the reasons for why uh, the immediate action was not taken and then of course that could lead to mediated revenge which is harmful harmful to you harmful to the person uh, to whom it is done because often revengeful acts are also unjust it could be excessive unjust so you're committing another unjust act because something was done to you initially and so does this also connect to in our first trip to sils maria we talked a lot about resentment and then this active and reactive values or maybe we can call active and reactive emotions right yeah, yeah definitely yes yeah, yeah definitely uh, but uh, both are right i mean active reactive values emotions forces uh, reactivity 
is connected to revenge and they are related but they are not maybe exactly the same look okay if i could okay revenge i guess we know what it is so reactivity reactive versus active reactive is life denying to deny life life forces um the body so all of these are reactive ressentiment is specifically if we can highlight one thing about ressentiment it is uh, the denial rejection of diversity diversity diverse forces differences again the rejection of life forces which are diverse so how do they all work together well re revenge in your revengeful act uh, you you could be life denying um that would be the connection between reactive and revenge by rejecting diverse forces you are denying life the life force of the other and that is also connected revenge revengefulness vengeance or uh, so basically they're all they're connected uh, how do they manifest themselves in sports uh okay it's recent the, the revenge is easy revenge is probably very common in sports revengeful acts i mean uh, i don't have any specific examples in my mind uh right now i'm thinking revengeful specific revengeful acts i don't know i mean often you may not even know these things because many of the acts foul acts probably are done on the revenge many many intentional fouls i would say uh, but i mean I, there, there may be <laughs> millions of examples but it's hard to know whether they are really done other revenge or not because you have to so anyway you have to read some of the things that athletes players say to to, to find out whether they were done other revenge or not okay the look all the biases prejudices that we have that also in sports uh, have to do with ressentiment um and we do we do see that in unfortunately a lot of racist stuff in sports today so those are acts of ressentiment that's uh, where i would say just highlight some, some of the examples yeah the, some of the racist acts i am wondering if uh, there is ressentiment going on in transgender exclusion exclusion of transgender athletes i know that's a very complicated topic i haven't done much study on that but yeah it was also a big topic in the last iops conference transgender issues and so that could be one of the future directions as well yeah, that, yeah basically the idea is okay how can we deal with subject without ressentiment without bias remove all the prejudices against the transgender athletes how can we still deal with it within if we still want to sustain fair game right that's a fair game it's also important in uh, to be to be more or less equal that's why we have the league system we have all these many many systems in place uh to see also even the peds uh, the drugs and all the performance enhancements uh, drugs and all that so all those debates uh, do include the idea of fair game how can we sustain fair game uh while while not being uh, biased against anybody including transgender athletes all all human beings uh should be given you know, if they want to practice sports if they want to compete yeah so basically there are 
so many things to put on the scale. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we've done a big tour of different ideas. Why don't we take just a short break and uh, then we'll move on to the second part and we'll talk a little bit more about, we have a few things to come, the positive emotions, we'll touch on them a little bit, as well as anxiety, fear, and a bit of aggression and violence as well. So thanks for the conversation so far. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.